0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. 2 Timothy chapter 3 beginning at verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. turn away what a radical first five verses that we confront ourselves with in second timothy chapter three do, do you have the scene in your mind of paul writing this paul's writing this from what we call it a prison cell i mean in all likelihood if it's the place where we thought it where we think it is in rome the Mamertine prison and, and if it wasn't that specific Spot, it was almost certainly a, a place much like it. We, we think of, you know, a, a square cell with bars and, uh, you know, maybe a place that they're chained up in the ancient world. And this, look, this place was a pit. It was basically just a hole in the ground where they threw people down and they had to fend for themselves. And, and we're not talking about anything that you would think of in the modern day as being a jail or a prison. And, and what's more, is that Paul had seen the inside of many jails. This wasn't a new experience. For him, And God had delivered him out of many jails. But there was something different about this imprisonment. There's something very heavy in Paul's heart and mind telling him, Paul, you're not going to make it out of this one. You're going to lay down your life. One day, probably very soon, they're going to call you out of your prison cell. They're going to lift you up out of it. They're going to take you to a place, and they're going to cut off your head. Paul had this sense, and this the, the sense hangs like a cloud over all of 2 Timothy. But when we come to chapter 3, we have the sense that Paul is thinking more than ever about what's going to be in the church after he leaves. See, Paul realized that the work of God is not going to end when he passes from the scene. And can we just thank the Lord for that? We thank the Lord for the great men and women that he raises up to lead his work throughout the centuries. But we're so grateful that God's work through his church is so much bigger than any great man or woman of God that he's raised up to do the work. And even though a man like Paul passes from the scene, God has others that are raised up, but it's on Paul's mind. The the threats that the work of God will face in the coming generations, it's on his mind. And so he warns Timothy, and notice how he warns him, verse 1, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Very interesting phrase in that first part of verse 1 where he says perilous times will come. That word translated perilous has the idea of troubles, difficulty, and stressful situations. That's the kind of atmosphere that's going to mark the last days. That, that same word in classical Greek, the one that's translated perilous right there in verse 1, in classical Greek, it was used of wild animals and of the raging sea. You want to know a very interesting occasion where that same word perilous is used in another place in the New Testament? Matthew chapter 8, uh, let me look at my notes here, verse 28 uses that same word to describe the demon-possessed man at the tombs of Gadarene. It says this, that he was coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Exceedingly fierce is the same word that's translated perilous. The times are going to be Fearful. And fierce and dangerous. That's going to be the kind of times people live in in the very last days. Now, sometimes people wonder about this phrase, the last days. And there are people who look at this and look at what the rest of the New Testament has to say about the last days and they just say flatly, Paul was wrong, Jesus was wrong. Jesus and Paul predicted that the end of the age was going to come very soon That they were in the last days and they would say, obviously we're not. I I think that's conceiving things in the big picture of the scriptures in a completely wrong way. I think when you take a look at it scripturally, this is the understanding we come to, is that the last days describe the culmination of the Messiah's reign and there's a sense in which the last days began or, or at least were ready to begin as soon as Jesus finished his work and ascended to heaven. There's a sense in which instead of running towards the edge, I'm going to do a little illustration here. Instead of walking towards the edge, just as I walk towards the edge of this, and thinking, well, the edge, that's the end of all things. And you know how close you are shows how close you are to the edge. It's more like this. That until the time of Jesus and his completed work, the the work of God and the plan of God came up towards the edge and now since the finished work of Jesus, now it runs alongside the edge, ready to go off at any time of Jesus' choosing. And so we have been in the last days and we are in the last days, but this is what God calls us to do, is to say, look at what the world will be like in the very last days and look around you and see if the world matches that kind of a description. Now, I, I think that my integrity before you as a Bible teacher, well, it's very important to me. I don't know how important it is to you, but it's very important to me. And, and I, I need to be very honest that I believe That God has given every generation some reason to believe that Jesus Christ could return in their generation. Do you know why I believe? Because I believe God wants every generation to live in the expectancy of the return of Jesus. The last thing in the world God wants for any of his people is to say, well, Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon. That's the last thing in the world God wants his people to believe. So, Well, I believe that there are definitely reasons for us to look around in the world today and to say, Jesus Christ is coming soon. We should be ready for the return of Jesus. I'm not trying to act like these conditions are completely unique to our times. Many of them existed before and many of them may exist in the future. Yeah, I think you'd be a fool if you did not look around at the world to say, so much of the world lines up with what the Bible said it would be like in the very last days. Therefore, Paul gives this description. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. I think that describes our present age pretty well. Verse 2, for men will be lovers of themselves. I hardly know what to say. Because people have always been lovers of themselves. I mean, is this something that just started in our current generation? But you know what's so strange about our current generation? I don't know if there has ever been such a deliberate, calculated, focused effort to teach a culture to deliberately love themselves the way it has been for the last 40 or 50 years in the Western world. I mean, the love of self has always been out there. Make no mistake about it. It's not like we just learned how to do this. But I don't know a time where entire curriculum of school districts has been focused on getting the students to love themselves more because i don't know about you but i could just speak for myself i do a pretty good job loving myself i don't need any special training in it um this is something that's just characteristic of people in general but oh how it seems so intense so so prevalent in our modern day now When I think about this whole phenomenon of loving yourself and self-love, I think sometimes Christians get it wrong. Self-love is a sin, but so also is self-hatred. I don't think God wants us to hate ourselves. And there are people who have some really twisted, messed up self-conceptions that I can see why loving themselves would seem to be the answer to them. I get that. I think the better approach is to do what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, where he said this, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should think. By the way, this this is so prevalent in our day and age today. It, it's um, it's it's really remarkable. And look, if, if I had done a better job preparing in every aspect, I, I would have the statistics, you know, up on the screen for you. But you're, you're you're well aware, aren't you, that that statistics show that, for example, in the United States, I, I won't speak for other nations right now, but just in the United States, that when they poll how students estimate their own ability, let's say at mathematics, they have a very high estimation of their own ability. And then they test what the students can actually do at, at mathematics, and it's not very high. So they have a great image of themselves of what they can do with math. They just can't do it very well. What well, Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think soberly. Listen. I don't want to preach to people that you should love yourself. I don't want to preach to people that you should hate yourself. I think we should think soberly about ourselves and who we are before God. And when God says that I am and you are as well precious human beings made in the image of God, worthy before God because we're his created beings, we should believe that. But when God also says that we are twisted sinners from the womb and we really need saving and transformation by Jesus Christ, we should believe that as well. The point isn't to say love yourself or hate yourself. The point is to say simply this, believe what God says about who you are. Both the good, and there's plenty of good, but the bad as well, and there's a good measure of bad. So he goes on, men will be lovers of themselves Lovers of money. Men will be boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Men will be unthankful, unholy. Now into verse 3, unloving, unforgiving. And we would say this, that, that since the beginning of time, these things have been characteristic of humanity. From the very beginning of time, Cain murdered Abel. But we look around at the world that we live in today. And I look at it, and I just sort of... Friends, I gasp just a little bit. Remember I told you about the gap that there is that they find statistically between how people estimate themselves and what they actually are capable of doing? I think that in general, in Western culture today, there's a tremendous gap. Because overall, in Western culture, we think we're pretty good. We look back on previous generations, and we go, wow, a bunch of losers. They weren't enlightened to all the things we're enlightened to. You know, look, look at all the things that they did wrong. Look at all the, um, the sexism. Look at all the racism. Look at all the terrible things in general past. And friends, I'm here to tell you, there's plenty of bad things in generations past. I don't excuse any of it. But have we forgot humanity in the last hundred years? Have, have we forgotten that the 20th century was the generation, was the century of genocide? Have we forgot that in the 20th century communist governments were responsible for the systematic deliberate deaths of up to 100 million people? 100 million people! And, and someone well, yeah, but we're pretty good. And we've got the scourge of abortion on demand in our country. Which says in the United States that any uh, child can be terminated at any time for any reason. That there should be absolutely no restriction on abortion whatsoever. Do you realize that that is one of the most radical abortion laws in the entire world? That you can count on one hand the countries that have the kind of radical abortion laws that the United States has. Any abortion at any time for any reason whatsoever. But yet, so much of our culture feels so good about itself today that we're really doing something. Look, I I could go through each item on this list. Lovers of themselves. Boy, could we talk about that for a long time? Lovers of money. Oh boy, boasters, proud, blasphemers. And, and several times before, when I've taught this chapter, I, I've given a slice from the current news that illustrates each one of those things. And it's easy to do. To coin a phrase, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, the fish are right there. It's not art. They're just, wow, it's easy. But I think about past times when I've taught this passage. And I wonder, I wonder if I taught it with the right heart. There's almost a sense in which we read the terrible description of what humanity will be like in the very last days. We see how, how frighteningly accurate it is of a description of the present day. And we just kind of wipe our hands and say, well, world's going to hell. Listen, I I think there should be at least three definite reactions that we have in our heart. Number one, we should be able to say, we are living in the last days. Look, I, I really believe, as I said before, God gives every generation some reason to believe that Jesus is coming again. And I think he's given us more than some reason. I think he's given us a lot of reasons. So if somebody wants to say, well, David, couldn't God delay and and recreate the same conditions on the world a hundred years ago? Yes, he could, but I'm not going to take that chance. I want to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ today. And I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So we're ready for the return of Jesus Christ, number one. But number two, and this is a very important point, I think, we recognize that humanity is not getting better. We, we live in this bizarre world where we think that because we get a better mobile phone every two years that humanity's getting better. By the way, a lot of times I, I don't like the latest mobile phone that comes out. I mean, I, I, I want the one that's a year or two old, but that's another thing. It's, it might just be because I'm old, but that's another matter. But we, we think that because technology gets better. We we think that because the things get shinier and brighter and faster and, and more of a woman, that all that's better. Listen, honestly, I don't think people are any better. If anything, people seem worse. Jesus is coming soon. That's what it tells us. Number two, it tells us people are not getting better. But thirdly, it tells us if there's any walk away from this whole list that I'd like you to take, it's this one. Brothers and sisters, it's harvest time. We look out on a world that is so messed up and so perishing, and we should have the same attitude that Jesus had when he looked out over the Samaritans that were streaming out to meet with him and the well where Jesus had spoken with the women at the well. And what did Jesus say? He looked out over those people coming out from the village and he said, The fields are white unto harvest, they are ready to be harvested. And we just say, Lord, let there be a great harvest. Father, we see so much corruption, so much decadence, so much failure and brutality and weakness and and life is cheap. And we go on and we see it all today, Lord. Father, the times are so black. Would you please shine your light in a glorious way? Now's the time, Lord. Father, because we love people. And of course, we know God loves people even more than we do. We want you to rescue people from the brokenness and the depravity and the self-destruction of everything that this describes in the last days. So we just don't wipe our hands and go, well, the world's going to hell. What are you gonna do? No, we pray, we work, we speak, we give, we do whatever we can to say, Lord, use us in the present age. It's harvest time, God. May we be about your business. But boy, what a description it is. Men will be, verse 3, slanderers, without self-control, brutal. You guys saw the news about that um, young boy in the United Kingdom, Alfie Evans. I wonder about this because, of course, the teaching I do tonight is recorded. It'll go online somewhere. And maybe a year from now, somebody will listen to it. You know what, a year from now, somebody will listen, they'll say, who's Alfie Evans? Because something like this comes, and it comes in our consciousness for a week or two, and then it passes. Things like this should not be forgotten. If you didn't hear, Alfie Evans was a young boy who had a rare, degenerative, mysterious brain disease. Doctors could not figure out what was wrong with him, but he knew, they knew he was in very serious trouble. And the National Health Service of Great Britain, which, look, I, I'm no expert on. I'm, I'm not going to speak to you this evening. As I'm, I'm some expert in healthcare. But from what I read, plainly, the, the officials at the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, they decided against the pleas of the parents that the boy should just die. And they refused him medical care. They took him off the ventilator and the boy still lived. So what did they do? They refused him food and water. They starved him to death and dehydrated him to death. Against the pleas of the parents, let us care. And then on top of all of this, there was a hospital in Rome that said, we'll take him. The Italian government offered him citizenship. We'll take him, get him here, We'll pay for everything. Just get him here. The, the government of Great Britain, the, the National health, they absolutely refused. Not only would they refuse to give him the care himself, they demanded that that boy die. Men will be brutal. And there's a brutality to today's big government and control over everything that makes me say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Men will be despisers of good. Men will be traitors. We're into verse four now. Headstrong, haughty, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You know that that phrase really sticks out to me, doesn't it? To you? Doesn't that describe so much of the Western world? And again, I'm not trying to act as if this is completely unique to our own generation. We just seem to be more sophisticated and we have more ability to pursue pleasure than ever before. But that's just it, isn't it? The vast majority of perishing people in our world today, they just say, well, I can love pleasure or I can love God. It's a no-brainer. I'll reject God and pursue pleasure. And you know what the great tragedy is behind that? One of the great tragedies, so many things, is that when you make pleasure your main concern, you're, you're destined for misery. But here's the thing. When you make God your concern, you'll get pleasure thrown in. I love what it says in Psalm 16, verse 11. Ready for this one? The psalmist said, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right there at the right hand of God. When we seek God, when we seek first the kingdom of God, pleasure gets... You don't have to choose between God and pleasure. You don't have to make that choice. But you know what? You do have to choose between... You do have to choose between the love of God and the love of pleasure. That's a choice you have to make. But you don't have to choose between God and pleasure. Because you pursue him. And you pursue the one of whom it is promised. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then he says in verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. You know we live in spiritual times, do we not? But these spiritual times that we live in, so often they deny the very power of God. When we talk about the power of godliness in our culture, oftentimes it's meant the power to give me what I want. But that's exactly the opposite of what Paul meant here. The power of godliness That men will despise in the last days is the power of God to guide their lives, the power of God to transform their lives, the power of God to rule over us as a rightful sovereign. That's the power of God that they'll despise. And then he says in verse 5 From such people turn away. Listen, I, I find it fascinating. That when you go through this list, you realize that the kind of people that this list describes, they're common today. But what's striking about it is that in our own day, often these people are our cultural heroes. They're the models of conduct for a generation. Well, it just shouldn't be like that for us. We should deliberately ask ourselves, who are our models of conduct? Who are the people that we will deliberately pattern ourselves after? Now, many people think it's enough if they say, well, I'm not like this. But if you hang around people who are like this, if you choose to make them your deliberate company, spend enough time around them, and you'll find that you end up in a similar place. They'll influence you. Do you remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33? It says this, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Put yourself around enough evil company, you will pick up their bad habits. Habits. So from such turn away. Now, uh, those first five verses, pretty depressing, no? Yeah, pretty, pretty terrible. Let's look at Paul's alternative starting at verse six. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's something in here in Paul's description verses 6 and 7 that speaks to us something of the power of this kind of spirit of the last days. And the power of it is expressed about those who creep into households. These influences come into our very homes And look at the phrase in verse 6, they make captives of gullible women. Now, I don't think Paul's picking on the ladies right there. I think Paul has in mind women as being more gullible in this example because they're at home, they're at the place where these influences come in and in many ancient cultures, not universally, but in many ancient cultures, women had more time for conversation and activity around the home. Again, I'm not trying to say that was universal in the ancient world, but oftentimes it was. I think what it is, is Paul's saying that these things are especially dangerous among those who bring them into their home, number one, and number two, have the time to entertain them. Then I think about our present age. You think about Everything that comes into our home. What used to be the television. And that was bad enough wasn't it? Then it was cable television. That got even worse. And then the internet. And those of us who are old enough to remember. What life was like before the internet. Can you imagine that? Children you know born what in the last 15-20 years. They have no concept of this whatsoever. None. And, And you see. That even though. The internet provides unbelievable opportunity for um, the spread of the gospel and for the spread of God's word and look I I thank God for the internet I thank God for for the ability to distribute great bible teaching and great bible resources worldwide over the internet what a gift that is but at the same time it does introduce a tremendous danger that can come right into the household so they creep into the household but then the other thing the idea of preying on the global women has a sense that they would have more time to be under their influence. And ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to understand that in a historical perspective, we in the Western world of the 21st century have a ridiculous amount of leisure time. Now, you, you're saying, David, what are you talking about? I feel stressed and busy in my job all the time. And I get that. I understand. I'm not trying to, you know, put you down and act like you're just, you know, kicking back all the time. But you you do have to admit that the kind of lives we live, as busy as they are and as much pressure and stress we're under, we're not under the stress of the man plowing his field 200 years ago, wondering if the crops are going to grow or he and his family are going to die that year. That's a different kind of stress. I'm not trying to say we don't have stress in our own daily lives. We do. But when you compare the margin for leisure and recreation that we enjoy now compared to 50, 100, 1,000 years ago, it's really unbelievable. Which makes it all the more dangerous For us to say we're not going to put ourselves under those influences. We're deliberately going to choose godly influences and not be, as it says there in verse 6, be led away by various lusts, be those, I love this phrase in verse 7, those who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Isn't that a fascinating phrase? Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Yes, there's a value for intelligence, there's a value for learning, but it's possible to be always learning but never coming to the truth. And God wants us to come to the truth, to the one who is the truth, Jesus Christ himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life. But before we move on to verse 8, we just got to understand, isn't it true in our day-to-day that people have even left the concept of the truth? they say, there is no truth. There's my truth, and there's your truth, and there's their truth, but there is no true truth. The Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer used to talk about that. And he was a man who saw things with unbelievable clarity decades before things really solidified into the world we are today. But Francis Schaeffer said, Christians need to start talking about the idea of true truth. Things that are true, whether or not we believe them. Not my truth or your truth or their truth, but things that are true truth. This is the danger in the world today. People always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Now here in verses 8 and 9, there's, there's this interesting relation that Paul makes to two figures from the Old Testament. He says, verses 8 and 9, now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Paul's trying to say that the spirit of the last days that he's been describing in the first seven verses, these are typified in two people from the Old Testament people that Paul calls Janus and Jambres. What's fascinating about this is that nowhere on the pages of the Old Testament do we find these names, Janus and Jambres, but we know exactly who Paul was talking about. Because these are the ones who resisted Moses. These were the two Egyptian magicians that resisted Moses. They're described in Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, chapter 7, verses 19 through 23, Chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, and chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, in those four passages, these Egyptian magicians, Janus and Jambres, they had their run-ins with Moses. And what's fascinating about these men is that they were able to work, at least in some regard, real miracles, not just sleight of hand, but some kind of real miracles, but they were miracles by the power of darkness and not by the power of God. Do you remember what happened when Moses threw his rod down and it became a serpent? What happened when Janice and John, they threw a rod down. It also became a serpent. But what happened? Moses' serpent ate theirs up, which was awesome. Now, I don't know. It's possible that on that occasion, it could have been a magician's trick. But as you get into the miracles that they kept on doing, or at least the so-called miracles, when Moses turned water into blood, they could do the same. Which, again, was one of the most hilarious backhanded things in the Old Testament. What was the problem when Moses cursed the waters? of Egypt and turn them into blood. No drinking water. So they had very little fresh water. What did Janus and Jambres do? They turned more of the fresh water that they had into blood. We'll ruin more of the water. Would have been a better miracle if they could have made it clean again, but they couldn't do that. So they imitated that miracle. When Moses brought forth a plague of frogs, Janus and Jambres could do the same yet eventually they could not match God and his messenger Moses miracle for miracle and their occult powers were shown to be inferior to what God provided. Therefore, they resisted Moses it says there in verse 8 but look at it I love the conclusion there in verse 9 they will progress no further. In other words, There was a limit to how far Janice and Jambers could go. They could impress Pharaoh. They could impress Pharaoh's court. They could deceive many. It was powerful. It was real. There was a distance they could go. But there was a point where God said, no further you're going to go. That's it. You will go no further than this. And that's exactly the idea that Paul is saying. God has a limit for the um, wickedness of this world. Now, uh, you and I may have been saying for a long time, God, hasn't it reached that limit? But God knows when that limit is. He does. And it's not wrong for us to cry out to God and say, how long? It's not wrong for us to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, again and again. None of that is wrong for us. But we got to understand, God in his wisdom knows I have a strange image in my mind. The image is somewhere on this globe. Maybe it's under a glacier and the, uh, one of the poles or something like that. Maybe it's on the hidden side of a mountain somewhere in the Himalayas. But somewhere if you could sweep away everything that obstructs, there's an expiration date right there on the earth. Just like there would be on a carton of milk. And, and, you know, do not allow to go beyond this date. God has that date. God has that limit. And sometimes we get a little shaken. Sometimes we see the wickedness and the brutality and, and the terribleness of this world. Sometimes we look over the last hundred years and we see the unbelievable carnage of the communist governments, of the world wars, of, of, of just the depravity of society. We look at all and we go, Lord, it's too much. God says, no, I know. I know what the expiration date is. You may not know, but I know. And there will be a point where I will not allow it to go any further. Look at that phrase in verse nine. They will progress no further. There's a limit, and God will establish that limit at the right time. Now verse 10. But you, and this is where we get to the contrasting good part. But you, writing to Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine Manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I confess, I like the list of verses 10, 11, and 12 a lot better than the list of verses 1 through 5. This is a great list. This is a list of Paul reminding Timothy of the contrast. Timothy, yes, bad times will come. I'm telling you about the kind of people that will threaten the earth in the last days. And you're going to have to contend with these people in some regard in your own day, Timothy. But there should be a clear dividing line between you and the conduct of Of those men, you, verse 10, you have carefully followed. And that's what made Timothy different than the spirit of the age. Listen, if you want to be different from the conduct that's described in the first five verses, that whole terrible list, if you want to be different, then this is what you got to do. Look at it right there. You need to carefully follow Paul's. Now, I need to pause right here. Paul said something very important in another letter of his. He said this, follow me as I follow Christ Jesus. So when he told Timothy here, follow my doctrine, Paul doesn't even have it in his mind, him apart from Jesus. He, he's really, he, follow Jesus. Now, we believe, and we believe with all our hearts, that Paul was Jesus's inspired messenger. There are people who like to drive a division between Jesus and Paul. Brothers and sisters, don't fall for it. Uh, oftentimes, they, they want to paint Jesus as, you know, kind of that hippie, loving, flower child Jesus. And Paul's the uptight guy that told everybody to knock everything off. That is the most erroneous and superficial reading of both Jesus and Paul that you can imagine. There's no division or divorce against Paul and Jesus. Now, you could take a passage where Jesus is expressing the great love and compassion and kindness of God and put it up against Paul, speaking of the great corruption and sinfulness in society, and it looks like they're at odds. But you could so easily turn it around. You could go to a passage where Jesus spoke with such condemnation against the corruption and depravity of society and turned around to a passage in Paul where he speaks of the great love and kindness and greatness of God. So again, it's it's an incredibly superficial reading that regards there being a difference. So when I say this, we understand that Paul is pointing Timothy, look at me, Paul was saying, but we understand Paul is saying, (laughs) please, Follow me as I follow Christ Jesus. Back to this again. I I just didn't want there to be any misunderstanding. Verse 10, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra. Timothy, if you want to be different from those last day's disasters that I described in the first five verses, then you follow after the pattern that I taught you. You stay faithful to what I taught you. What a challenge for us this is. Is it not, brothers and sisters? Listen, we live in a world that is very powerful, very powerfully morally, very powerfully, um, maybe I should say very powerfully immorally, Uh, very powerful in its seduction, very powerful in the social pressure it puts around us, we will only withstand it by following hard after Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul told Timothy to do. Follow me. You've carefully followed my doctrine. It all began with doctrine, did it not? The reason Paul lived the way he did was because he believed certain things. It's so interesting in our modern age. The the way our modern age thinks is what you believe about God and religion has nothing to do with the rest of your life. Brothers and sisters, that's a complete lie. It has everything to do. Who you conceive God to be is the most important thing about you. It shapes your destiny. It shapes who you are now and into the future. So for Paul, rightly so, it all began with doctrine. Now listen, I I need to tell you, it didn't end with doctrine. Not by any means. And there are some believers out there who think that doctrine is the only important thing in the Christian life. It's not the only important thing. But it is an essential foundation. I ran across a quote in the last week. I wish I would have written it down. I had it in my notes here this evening. So I'm just going to paraphrase it uh, you know, from my mind. It's a brilliant quote. A great Bible teacher, a great scholar of our present generation, he said something like this. He said, I spend half my time telling people how important doctrine is and I spend the other half of my time telling them that proper doctrine isn't enough. And both are true. Proper doctrine is very important but it by itself is not enough. But it begins with there. You followed my doctrine. Then look at it, and my manner of life. There was a certain way that Paul lived. Was it perfect? Not by any means. But you could look at a man like Paul and say that man's following Jesus. I can take his example. And matter of fact, I can see him when he fails and falls short, and I can follow what the example, what to do then as well. I love this as well. I love this list. Followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose. Oh, you looked at the Apostle Paul and you said, there's a man who has a purpose in life. Do you realize how many people are attracted and sold out to evil? It was so true of the communist world. It's true today of the Islamic world. How people will sell themselves out to incredible evil but it gives them a purpose in life. And it's usually phrased as a very noble purpose, is it not? The the lofty goal of the communists, they, they claimed a great purpose. In the mind of many of those who follow radical Islam, they claim a great purpose. But the problem is in so much of the decadent West, people live without any purpose. That man Paul he had a doctrine, he had a manner of living, but he had a purpose in his life as well. And he had, just continue to list on in verse 10, he had faith, long suffering, love. He had all those things, perseverance. Now into verse 11 persecutions, afflictions. Now, this, this is what really strikes me into verse 11. Look at this oh, the, the purpose, the faith, long suffering, love, perseverance. Look, you you think like a man like that would be man of the year, wouldn't you? But then he drops the bomb in verse 11. The man of that great purpose, the man of that right doctrine, the man of that Christ-like manner of living, the the man of that love and long-suffering, that man was persecuted. And um, we think about that, we think about are many brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who face terrible persecution? Hardly seems like two weeks can go by without hearing of some terrible massacre in Pakistan, in Egypt, in Iran, in other places where Christians are terribly persecuted. And it makes us wonder as our own culture becomes more and more ungodly, as it becomes more and more defiant against God, is, is some kind of persecution on the way for us? It very well could be. But then what I find is so fascinating about this is he lists the specific places. You know, look, Paul's in a prison cell. He, he knows his life is gonna be over soon. Would you, would you grant him a little trip down memory lane? And so he's thinking about it. He's thinking about the times he was persecuted. And not that these were the only times at all, but three ones stick out in his mind. Look at it there in verse 11, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. At Antioch, Paul was kicked out of the city for preaching the gospel. You'll read about it in Acts chapter 13. At Iconium, Paul was almost stoned to death for um, preaching the gospel. That's in Acts chapter 14. And then at Lystra... They actually did stone Paul and they left him for dead. That's in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. Paul wore each one of those like a badge of honor. Now look, most of the time God isn't a showy God. It's amazing how humble God is. And God is so humble that that if people want to deny God's hands and things, sometimes they can. God is a very humble God, but if God were a little less humble and gave like fancy uniforms to his servants and pinned medals on their chests, could you imagine Paul showing the stripe here? That was at the Battle of Antioch right there. And this, this little stripe, this is from Iconium. Oh yeah. And let me tell you what happened in the war at Lystra. You know, he's stripping his arm and showing his battle scars. The third one he lists right there, Lystra, number three. You know why he named that one? Timothy was from Lystra. Timothy reads that and something jumps in his heart. I remember. Paul, I remember. You were under a pile of rocks. We thought you were dead. And when we saw your courage there in my own hometown, Paul, I knew that's the kind of man I wanted to follow. And that's why Paul brought it up. And that's why he says in verse 11, and out of all of them, the Lord delivered me. You know what's interesting? I imagine Paul writing that and looking out at his jailer. Maybe he's chained to him, maybe he's right outside the hole. God delivered me out of all of those. And maybe right now in the here and now, I'm not going to make it out of here alive, but God will deliver me nevertheless. I'm going to be with Jesus Christ for resurrection. I wonder if Paul didn't, didn't just think back on that phrase. You know, I wrote it and I believe it, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. And God spared my life so many times through so many persecutions. And if now I'm led to pay the ultimate price, God will not forsake me even in death. And I will only gain by laying my life down. Verse 13. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, Timothy, I'm here to tell you that evil men, imposters, they're gonna get worse and worse. I'm just trying to be real with you about it. And it's almost as if Paul could look down the corridors of the centuries and see the 21st century right here, right now. If God gave him a flash of that vision, he goes, woo, it's gonna get worse and worse. If he could see literally the millions of dead from the 20th century. If he could see that, he could say, Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. Verse 14, but you must continue in the things which you've learned. Forget about those evil men. Timothy, I've got a focus for you. You must continue in the things which you've learned. Timothy, we're not playing games. You're living in a dangerous world. These are perilous times out there. We're not playing games. You must continue in those things which you have learned. You learned them. You learned them from Paul. You learned them from the others who have taught you these things. And you began to learn them, notice, from childhood when you knew the Holy Scriptures. Timothy, continue in what you received, but don't think that it began with Paul. It's very interesting. Paul brought the message to Timothy, but Paul didn't create the message. Paul just brought the message that had been existing from the Holy Scriptures before and i think paul does a beautiful draw job here of drawing that line of continuity it's as if paul's looking back at god's work from the very beginning because when he says the holy scriptures there in verse 15 what does he mean he means the old testament You learn the Old Testament from your mom and your grandma. They told you the Bible stories. They taught you the Bible. You learn to love the Old Testament. It's a beautiful heritage that was passed on to you. And Timothy, you're living in the continuity of that. That God's work didn't begin with Paul. God's work has been going on in his plan of the ages from the very beginning. And we're just handing one torch to another. So it's a beautiful and a powerful thing, isn't it? that we belong to something that stretches back from the generations to the very beginning of God's plan of the ages. We have this beautiful company of God's people, the company of the redeemed throughout all the generations. And one of the great connecting links we have with that is what we've received from the Holy Scriptures, verse 15, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, why? Are they able to make you wise? Look at verse 16. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That is one of the most wonderful single verses in the entire Bible. And we'll have to leave it for the next time that we get together here on a Wednesday night. I'm going to break off here at verse 15 where Paul really exhorts Timothy continue in the things you have learned and he draws his attention to the holy scriptures and when we pick it up next time we'll see how Paul puts the inspiration of scripture at just such this central place in the life and the development of the believer All right, let let me conclude with this I want to draw your attention just back to something I said before. We look at the depravity, the danger, the perilous times that we live in today. We read the first five verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and go, whoa, that's today. What's our reaction? Our reaction is threefold. Number one. Our reaction is we say, well, Lord, your word is true. You described it just as it would be. We are in the last days. Number two, we take it very seriously that even though we have better gadgets today than ever before, that even though there's some parts of our lives that are more wonderful, I don't want to go back to pre-flush toilet days and pre, you know, I don't want to have to sail to Europe. Thank you very much. I, I, I like flying there. There's so much that we appreciate about our modern age, but we realize people aren't getting better. In many ways, people are becoming more corrupt, even though so much of the culture doesn't think so. And finally, it just makes us say, brothers and sisters, this is harvest time every one of us has some way that we can put our hand to the plow for God's work in this generation. May we be obedient to what God tells us to do and join in to help reap these fields that are white for harvest. Father, this is our prayer. As we see, Lord, the critical nature of the times we live in, give us a heart and a passion to love and serve this needy world and to go forward, Lord, Never behind, but always forward. Following in the same thing that you started us in, in the Christian life. That simple following after Jesus Christ. And if you put rare servants in our midst, like the Apostle Paul that we can learn a lot from, we're grateful for that. But Lord, our eyes are always on Jesus, seeking to follow and glorify him. Thank you for that in our midst, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.